With fall now here and the temperature slowly starting to drop, a lot of us will look to warm up with a nice bowl of soup. Well, at least those of us who can get our hands on soup. No soup for you! Hi, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. That's one of the most memorable TV catchphrases of all time. And with me in the studio today is the man who said it, the soup Nazi of Seinfeld fame. Soup Nazi, hello. It actually goes, no soup for you! I know, I was not even going to try to do it like you do. I'm not sure of what your name is, so do I call you Mr. Soup, Mr. Nazi... Soupman, original Soupman, original Soupman, and speaking of original Soupman, the CEO of the original Soupman Soup Company is with us in the studio. His name is Jamie Carson. Hello, Jamie. George, you can call me Jamie. All right, I will call you Jamie. So, Soup Nazi, I want to know the rules of your shop. What are the rules of your shop? Have your money ready, know your soup, order, and step to the left. You step to the left because the menu is on your right, and if you stand there like a bug, people cannot see past you at the menu. You also can't cut the line at your shop, right? That's a no-no. That, you get no soup if you try that. Or ask for bread more than once, because you gave George Costanza a hard time about that. That's because he has beady little eyes, and I can tell he's dishonest. <laughs> is that Most why? people get bread. How did you come up with these rules? Very simple. You have to keep the line moving. It's very busy in New York City. It's usually lunchtime. People want to get their soup and go. And so if someone doesn't have their money ready, if they get up to the to the front of the line and they're standing there going, hmm, um, uh, let's see. It's like out. You get up there. You know what you want. I want the lobster bisque. I want a medium lobster bisque. You pay right away, and then you get the heck out of the way so other people can see the menu. Common courtesy. Common courtesy. Speaking of long lines, you have very long lines. Why are the lines so long for your soup? What makes it so good? Very simple, because the soup is that good. You have people that come every day from work and eat the soup. Sometimes it's the same soup every day of their lives. It's that good. Jamie, what do you think makes the soup so good in your opinion? Uh, I think Larry said it best. Uh, the soup is filled with uh, uh, lobster, real chunks of lobster in the lobster bisque, real Maryland crab in the Maryland crab corn chowder. Uh, we have three types of seafood and andouille sausage in the jambalaya. So it's the ingredients we use, and the soup man's recipes are the best there are. That's what makes it special. Soup man, what's your favorite? My favorite soup uh, is, well, it's like saying which would be my favorite child out of my children. I, I cannot actually say that. I can't pick a favorite baby of mine. So they're all, I love them all. I think Jerry Seinfeld ordered the crab bisque and George Costanza, he ordered the turkey chili. Two good choices. Two good choices. Except George was an idiot and he didn't get his. <laughs> <laughs> Jamie, let me ask you more about the brand and how it's grown since the soup Nazi went on Seinfeld to say no soup for you. Right. So we are this iconic New York City brand, born and bred in New York City, lines out the door on our store in 55th Street and 8th Avenue. And we've taken that brand and that product and expanded it into the wholesale channel. So we're selling uh, virtually all the major supermarket accounts around the country, including Kroger's, Publix, Wegmans. Here in New York City, we're at ShopRite, Fairway, uh, Gristides. And, uh, you know, we continue to add products into the lineup and continue to add uh, accounts. Soup Man, are you surprised about the success of your soup? 
No, not at all. It's it's that good, and I knew that the second anyone tried it, they would say it was their favorite. Um, I think you have some soups there to try. I do have some soups here to and try. And I hear you've already tried one. I, I hear did. this rumor. I actually feel something whenever somebody <laughs> eats the soup. It's sort of like when someone's talking about you, so... I knew you were having uh, our soup the other night. Okay, yeah, and you were—you are right. That instinct is true. I had the chicken noodle the other night, and I must say I enjoyed it. But of course. Today, I have before me here the chicken gumbo, which I am going to try, and it smells absolutely amazing. So let me try the chicken gumbo. That is good chicken gumbo. That is. No question about it. No question about it. Any time of day, we're doing this interview right now in the morning. Doesn't matter. Chicken gumbo for breakfast? Sure. Why not? Breakfast of champions. There you go. Right. I have Soup the, is the new juice. The new, the new juice. Okay. Right. That's a good slogan. I have the lobster bisque here. I'm going to try that. Let's see. A little slurp on the lobster bisque. Really good. Also a really good soup. Right. Lobster bisque is our best seller. It is. It is. And that has been the case for a long time? Yeah, historically that's been the case. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, we use, as I said, we use real chunks of North Atlantic lobster. Mm -hmm. um, the spices and the ingredients come together in, in a soup that's not too thick. Not, uh, It's hearty, but not too thick. It's just a very tasteful soup. And the shrimp bisque. Shrimp bisque is new, our, our new soup for fall. Let me give this a shot. That is also... Really, really good. I can't pick a favorite. I'm with you, yep, Soup Man. With I'm me. with you. I cannot do it. You can't pick a favorite. I can't do it. No, I won't they do it. They are all delicious. They are all delicious. How do you decide on a new variety of soup? What's the process Right, there? so the customer decides. Uh, we're using our store on 55th Street to test product and react, and customers vote with their wallet, and they tell us what's great. And uh, once we know that something is working in our own store, uh, we'll call up one of our wholesale partners and uh, test product there. And uh, assuming that we have a hit, um, you know, we, we roll it out to wholesale. Even though you have a guy like this who's not very nice to the customers? He is the greatest. He is the greatest soup man in America. You know that there is an old saying. Uh, I think Humphrey Bogart came up with it. And he said, all that I owe my audience is a good performance. All that I owe my customers is good soup, great soup, and they get it. <laughs> the soup industry is gigantic. You know, it's over $8 billion, um, and uh, we're carving out our small piece of it, uh, going up against Campbell's and Progresso in the soup aisles at all the supermarkets in the country. They don't have the soup man. They don't have the soup man. They, they, they don't have a face of the brand like we do. Speaking of the face of the brand, let me lift the veil, if I will, on the face of the brand. This is not the actual Superman from Seinfeld. This is the actor who played the Superman. His name is Larry Thomas. Now, Larry, I would imagine that a lot of people think you are the actual Superman. Like, that's your real deal. That's who you are. Yeah, well, that's, that's really why I'm here, and that's why I'm doing this, because there's a, a very thin line of reality uh, when people watch television. I have, through the years, had people coming up to me and going like, oh, I'm so sorry, man, Elaine got your recipes, and, you know, and, <laughs> and I'd go, you do know that that was a, a television show, right? <laughs> you know, and, and uh, so through the years, people have associated me with the real character or the real man, which is Al Yegane, who really 
uh, opened up in 1984 at that at that soup stand. And the soup was, of course, so famous in New York that long before the episode of Seinfeld, long before me, there was avid, avid uh, appreciators. And, you know, New Yorkers, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, know the best food in the world. These are the best critics of food that there is. And these native New Yorkers would come out from l- for lunch and spend their whole lunch hour waiting online just to get this soup. I've been at the soup stand now that I am with the company. I have been there and watched the same lady come up every day of the week and, and get the lobster bisque. And, and I go like, you, you want to try any of the others? And she goes, no, I, I live for this every day. People, it tastes so good, and people that are discerning just love to get something that tastes good. I myself am a foodie. Mm-hmm. You know, I always have been. Uh, when I was a little kid, my dad had a restaurant called The Venetian in Manhattan. And uh, I've just grown up with the idea that if I have to taste something mediocre or eat something mediocre during the day, I feel cheated. I feel like, darn, I spent one of my meals and got cheated because you can you can have something that tastes great every time you eat. And I think that's what our customers are all about. Now, of course, the TV show did uh, wonders as well for the brand and for the soup because now you have, on any given day, you'll have a group of tourists from Australia lined up to get the soup. And, and I will say to them, so you're from Australia? And they'll go, we, we came here just to get the soup. We came all the way here just to stand online and get the soup. And they, they do. They they make a trip based on getting to the soup stand and then seeing the rest of New York. So it's a, it's an amazing phenomenon. The, the show itself was a phenomenon, as uh, we talked personally earlier. And the soup is a phenomenon. This episode was released in November of 1995. Here we are in 2016, and people are still walking around going, no soup for you. Yeah, that that uh, the saying itself uh, has actually separated from the show. I meet people that will go, you're the no soup for you guy, no soup for you. And I'll say something about Seinfeld, and they'll go, well, I, I didn't watch the show. I never saw the show. And I said, so, but you know the catchphrase? And they said, yeah, you know, or people that own restaurants or work in restaurants, they all know the catchphrase. Uh, it's, a, it's just an amazing phenomenon. But, but as we discussed, the show itself is as well. It still plays like four times a day in every country of the world. I hear from people in Bosnia and Croatia, Portugal, Venezuela, the United Kingdom, Australia, as I discussed, and they're loving the show all these years later. And, and some are seeing it for the very first time, yeah, new generations. Yeah. And and they're watching this very specific sort of New York neurosis, which you'd think they wouldn't understand, and yet they're not only understanding it, but they're they're laughing at it and they're I, I meet thirteen year old kids that are just telling me how much they love it. Jamie, do you remember the first time you saw this episode featuring I, the Soup Nazi? Yeah. I did. The The uh, New York City neurosis lends itself to making great soup. And uh, so the, I do remember seeing Larry, and he was brilliant in the role. Thank you. Larry, did you ever have the opportunity to meet the real-life Soup Man? I actually uh, have met Al, and uh, um, it was it was really fun because he had just done uh, an episode of Oprah Winfrey, this was back in 2002, and uh, it was it was for a charity soup can drive that they were doing, and they showed 
a clip from the show of me. You know, uh, I think the first scene is the one they usually end up showing. And so that was the first time he saw it. And although, you know, quite publicly everyone knows he's hated the moniker, um, mostly because of the N-word, he comes from a culture where it's not a joke. Yeah. You know, in this culture, it's a joke. It's, yeah. It, but you yourself it, are it, Jewish, yeah. and you are the soup Nazi. Yeah, see, so I get the joke. I mean, I grew up, if my mom wouldn't give me an extra quarter to go see a movie, I'd go like, my, you're such a Nazi. You know, it's a quarter. And so we get the joke, but so, so you know, it's people historically know that he was against that. But he, he ended up seeing that scene, and when I met him, he had just done that, and the first thing he said to me, he goes, you're very funny. You're a very funny man. So uh, it kind of broke the ice. How did you get the audition to become the Soup Nazi? Uh, it, was, it was, on the one hand, just the simple audition process that every journeyman actor goes through. But on the other hand, it came through a kind of an interesting series of events that started with Jeffrey Tambor. I was in an acting class. Jeffrey Tambor was in the class. He was the head substitute teacher. And we had a pretty good working relationship. And uh, at one point, you know, I hate asking favors for people. I'm a bad networker. But at one point, all my classmates said, you know, Jeffrey likes you. Why don't you ask him to do something for you? And so it was hard. But I, I he was on the Larry Sanders show. He was playing Hank Kingsley. And I just said, how about introducing me to your casting director. You know, I need work. <laughs> I think my acting teacher was going to kick me out of class for not working enough. But uh, Jeffrey did just that, and it turns out that the same casting director, Mark Hirschfeld, was casting Seinfeld. So I had a meeting with him, and then when the character came up for casting, he remembered me. We had talked about doing dialects. I said, you know, with a face like mine, all I do I play very few American characters because I look so foreign in every way. And, uh, you know, they knew they they loosely based it on Al, so they wanted a Middle Eastern-sounding guy. They weren't really specific about, you know, Al's Iranian. They, they just said a Middle Eastern guy, and they call him the soup Nazi. I understand and, that you know. Lawrence of Arabia figures into your <laughs> figures preparation in. to this audition. Yes, sir. I, uh, at the time, and we're going back to videotape, I had Lawrence of Arabia on videotape. So given the night before the audition, I was told the character's called the Soup Nazi and he has a Middle Eastern accent. And then that was it. I didn't get to see any of the dialogue. But for the Middle Eastern accent, I just popped in Lawrence of Arabia, forwarded to a scene with Omar Sharif, and he said, You're drifting, Lawrence. Stop drifting. Be warned. And I went, that's it. That's the accent I'm using. And so I went in there the next morning just with that in mind. And there was there was a scene. Uh, there were three scenes, actually, on paper when I got there. And I had the night before I had talked to a friend of mine on the phone who's a stand-up comedian, a guy named Tom Ayers. And uh, he said, okay, so what if there's no script? What are you going to say? I went, um, well, you know, soup Nazi, right? He's some kind of a militant soup vendor. He's going to hate the Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer, obviously. And he's going to say something like, you, small fry, with the bald head, you go to the end of my line, or you get no soup. And he said, my friend said, I like that no soup thing. And I went, really, why? And he goes, I don't know, no soup, no soup. It just kind of rings. And I'm not good with that kind of stuff. I said, okay, fine. But when I got there the next day and I 
got the scenes. And, of course, in the first scene, he says, no soup for you. And I thought, well, Tom wasn't wrong, huh. you know. And uh, so what came out of me in that very first reading is what you saw, which is rare. Nobody messed with what I did. I went uh, to the first audition, then I got a callback, and in the callback, Jerry, of course, was there, along with you know the rest of the hierarchy of the show. And uh, I did, by this time, there were six, all six scenes. I did all six scenes for Jerry. He seemed to really enjoy it. He laughed his head off. And then they had me wait and come back in, and Jerry said, and this is so funny. He goes, you know, man, that, that was really funny, but I, I, I don't understand why you're so mean. Why the character's so mean? He goes, can you do it again and maybe be a little nicer sometimes? You know, and I tried it again like that, and it, it didn't make him laugh. And I felt mm -hmm. it, deep inside it wasn't working at all. And so, uh, oddly enough, I got cast. But when I walked into the soundstage, he beelined over to me and he goes, hey, man, just want to tell you something. Forget about the direction I gave you when in the audition. He goes, just do what you did when you walked in. He goes, for some reason, the, the meaner, the funnier. Huh. And that was Jerry showing why the show was such a success, because he didn't have the kind of ego that said, I'm right and you're wrong. He was able to just go, for some reason, you made me laugh. And I was really, really super lucky. That doesn't often happen. You know, my career has been filled with losing roles because I did not do it the producer's way. What was your career you know? like prior to becoming the soup Nazi, and how did it then change your life forever? Well, um, I, ca I call it the career I was having, I called it beg, borrow, and steal theater. I mean, I was so working and doing plays in L.A. is so difficult. It's not like the theater scene here in New York, and that's where I was. I was in L.A. So you put on your own plays. You know, sometimes I would just sit and write a play for nine people because I had nine friends that were all out of work and wanting to do a play. And uh, sometimes I would d direct the play because we couldn't find a director. We would We would beg for a place to put up a play and, you know, borrow furniture, borrow costumes, one night we found ourselves behind Home Depot, uh, you know, stealing scraps of wood because we needed molding for the set. I call that the steel part of Beg, Borrow, and Steel. So I had done about 15 years of that kind of stuff. Just the kind of actors you don't know are out there. Especially in L.A., they don't know they're out there. I mean, you know in New York there are these theater actors. But in L.A., they don't even know those guys are out there because you're waiting on them in restaurants. And that's what they know. And so I did a lot of that, and uh, yeah, Seinfeld was, it was a, a step over my head as far as the money that gets spent to do the show, the amount of people that are going to see the show. Before Seinfeld, I always used to joke that I, I memorized everybody's face that had ever seen me in anything, because, hmm. you know, some nights we'd do a show and there was a couple in the entire theater, there were two people, and they were sitting in the front row making out. You know, and we'd be on stage thinking, like, well, why don't we just stop and watch them? <laughs> Obviously, what they're doing is more interesting than what we're doing. But so uh, acting-wise, I was ready for Seinfeld. I mean, with all those years, I, I felt I could hang with anybody. But I just had not been at a, in a situation where 32 million people were going to see what I did and that I was going to 
you know, have everything there, costume given to me, a trailer, a place to change into my costume that wasn't like in an alley behind the theater. Is it true you were working as a bail bondsman when the audition came up? Yes, that was my day job. Although I had many other jobs through the years, that is a job that I had for about 14 years. And uh, um, it was actually a great job for an actor because it doesn't have set hours. So unlike... A lot of actors that had trouble with their full-time jobs trying to go to auditions and stuff, I was able to take class, go to auditions, rehearse plays and stuff, and still, you know, work, which was, it's very important. Some poor actors, you know, they can't find a job to make money and still try to apply the craft in a career that it may be 10 years before anybody hands you a dime for doing it. That being said, how much did you make to play the soup Nazi on Seinfeld? It's public. $2,610. $2,610. And you have no idea what... I think my... I, I had a condo. I was married at the time. I think our mortgage was like nine-something a month. And that 26 I knew even after taxes was going to go past the amount of mortgage for that month. So think of a free month of mortgage. And that's what that four days meant to me was like, I don't have to worry about the mortgage this month, you know? So, and, and having no idea that after that $2,610, it was going to go any further than that. In fact, and this is stated uh, by Andy Ackerman, the director on the special material for the show, that they thought that the script might be a turkey. It was a first time writer, Spike Ferriston. He had just been hired. He was a Letterman staffer, a staff writer and he was a young guy, and the Letterman writers are the guys that nicknamed Al the Soup Nazi because they were right around the corner at the Ed Sullivan Theater from the soup stand at Mm -hmm. 55th and 8th. And so they would eat the soup for lunch, and they nicknamed him, but it was just a personal joke. And when Spike got hired on Seinfeld, he was pitching ideas, but they weren't liking any of his ideas. And one day he just mentioned the soup and the soup Nazi. I guess I think it was as a story goes, it was lunchtime. And he said, I, I wish we had the soup Nazi around the corner or whatever. And Larry David questioned him about it. And he explained it. And Larry said, that's your show, write that. So, you know, it was a very kind of weird script. Spike was hip hopping on uh, where the show was morphing, which was from like one story, one really specific storyline like the Chinese restaurant into these different storylines that would all kind of dovetail at the end. And so Spike took it a step further. You know, I had the Schmoopy storyline, the Soup Nazi storyline, the um, uh, Armoire Thieves storyline. And then there was another storyline that didn't make it into the episode about uh, Jerry accidentally bought unsalted pretzels. And everybody that would come into the apartment would go, oh, you know, and he'd go, gosh, shouldn't have gotten the baldies. And then at the end, of course, Kramer goes, these are great. And he's eating them. So Spike really wrote a kind of advanced Seinfeld script. So when we were shooting it, when we were rehearsing it, I should say, there was a lot of talk on set that, you know, we may not even use this. And so I thought, you know, I checked with the Screen Actors Guild and they said, no, they've hired you. You're on set. You're rehearsing. They got to pay you. Mm hmm. So I, at least I knew I was going to, if if in three days they said, okay, everybody go home, you know, I'd get paid. And uh, so we did the episode. Uh, the audience seemed to love it because it's a live audience show. 
And uh, I just went away thinking, well, I got through the week. I'm getting paid. I had fun because I did. I had a ball. Working with those four was amazing. And having a guy like Larry David hovering around, basically what Larry does is I call him like the mathematician of comedy. Like he comes down at the end of the rehearsal and he watches you. And then I'll go, okay, that's great. Great. Do that. Do that. Keep doing that. Don't do that. Don't wipe your head there with the cloth. It's too much. And uh, yeah, and just do that. And that's the way he looks at comedy. And he's always right, you know, and it felt right at the time. So I, I knew I was in good hands, but I still walked away from that thinking, well, we may see it. We may not. You know, I, I wasn't real experienced in network television at the time. Since then, I did many, many guest spots and watched Many, many things I love not make it on the air. So I stopped telling people to watch shows. Hmm. I stopped saying like, oh, what? I got this great speech in this. Because then they'd watch it. It's not there. So uh, Seinfeld was a great experience. Um, they pretty much used the best of everything I did. I was really lucky. And uh, it still remains, you know, probably the most pure thing that's ever aired in film or TV that I've done. Even Austin Powers, which is like all my appreciators of my career's second favorite mm -hmm. thing, even that, as, as much as that scene, you know, I love that scene, there was the funniest line in the scene was cut out. So much so that when the movie screened, Jay Roach, the director, who's a first-time feature director at that point, came up to me and apologized before I saw it. He said, you know that line we loved that when you say, you have 17, sir, the book says not to. We said that line like 30 different ways. He loved playing with it. But they, he had to cut it because he said, I needed a straight man and it had to be you. So, you know, you as an actor, you go through a series of heartbreaking moments where something you loved doesn't make it. And in Seinfeld, I have to say, like, like, everything I liked, every good thing I did is there. And more so, they, you know, they, they focused on reaction shots of me that they will never do with a guest actor. They'll always quickly cut back to the series regulars. And uh, I hear Jerry was mostly responsible in editing for saying, stay on him, stay on him. Yeah, the Superman you was know. very still, you, in that yeah. role, were very still, Oftentimes that was that intentional. Scene. That was intentional. Yeah, uh, intentional in two ways. At that point in my career, I had watched myself on film overacting, you know, doing theater acting on film. And so one of the things I wanted to do uh, was just keep still. And then the other thing that happened was the the four cameras, the four gigantic, expensive <laughs> film cameras staring down my throat kind of scared me and i found myself sort of almost afraid to move you know what i mean uh -huh. so the stillness it is evident and it did and it happened for those two reasons i kind of wanted to do that but maybe not that much but you didn't see me moving around a lot you might see other guest actors on seinfeld and other episodes being much more animated than i was but i really wanted to keep this character very still what about the other line come back one year my only ad lib <laughs> people go like did you did so did you make a lot of that up did you ad lib you know because they i think they think there was a lot of that going on 
Um, but the series regulars did a lot of that. But um, I was sticking to the script, and then that in rehearsal, that one line came up, and it was come back in one year, and it just it felt like too many words for the accent and the character. So somehow it just came out of my mouth, you know, come back one year, and everything stopped. And I looked over, and Jerry and Larry were actually whispering to each other, and I'm thinking, like, okay, you blew it. You're, you know, now they're going to call Shaloub. You're fired. And uh, Jerry finally goes, like, okay, keep it. So that was it. That was my one, my one ad lib to the script. You are a native of Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. You grew up with a single mom in Brooklyn. Your dad left when you were very young. Right. I understand that you have had insomnia since you were five years old, and you would watch comedy overnights, and that sort of helped to shape you. Yeah, and boy, you've done your research. Kudos to you. Um, uh, it's incredible when someone interviews you and they've, they've done their research. But that's so true. I had, when my dad left, the only thing that he left for us was an old TV set, a 19-inch Admiral black and white TV, and my mom gave it to me. She wanted me to have something of his. And because I couldn't sleep at night, I would watch... What we used to have is the all-night movies. You know, you'd have... What do you have? Two, four, five, seven, nine, and 13. Maybe those, 11 if you were uh, lucky. Yeah, those were the channels. Yeah, long before Fox. Those were the channels. And so I would watch these all-night movies. And uh, not only... You know, did I really appreciate the comedy? I was a fan of W.C. Fields. I had seen, like, every one of his movies. None of my friends even knew who he was. So I'd go out with my friends when I was a teenager, and I'd say, like, you know, Ah, yes, reminds me of the time that I shot a man's nose off. And my friends would go, What are you doing? And I'd go, Never mind, never mind, you know. But And also, in between those movies, that's when they used to show those uh, Three Stooges shorts. That's where you'd see him, you know, in between movies. And so I was a big Stooges fan, big W.C. Fields fan. And so I grew up not being an actor. I mean, I didn't even do drama in uh, high school. I didn't even know the drama department was there. I was interested in getting my credits and going to work at noon. And, uh, you know, I didn't do theater, and I never even thought of being an actor so I accidentally got into it when I was in college. I was majoring in journalism. I wanted to be a news reporter. But I met a girl who was a theater major, and I wanted to go out with her, and I was having a lot of trouble getting that date. So I signed up for a couple of theater classes thinking, you know, maybe if I'm around her more often at school, I'll, I'll get a chance. And I had to get up and recite a speech. And it was the most exciting thing I had ever done. I mean, the adrenaline rush was such that I've never known. And at the time, I was an avid snow skier, and it was even more exciting than that. So I just decided to try it. And the only thing I had going for me, because I was told that first semester I did a play, I was, I was actually told that I was the worst actor in the department. But the one thing I had going for me is I made people laugh. I, I had people... I did a French farce. It was called A Flea in Her Ear, and I played this hot-tempered Spanish matador. And in one line, I said something like, I kill you! I kill these people! And I was, like, chasing everybody around with my, with my revolver. And I heard other people walking around the hallway when they didn't know I was coming up behind them, imitating me. And so 
you know, I, I kind of knew as the years went by that, well, I have one thing going for me is I, I know how to do comedy. And it's come full circle. People yeah. are still imitating, imitating you. Me, yeah. <laughs> but it took, it took years to get the acting thing down. You know, actors, good actors have certain instincts. They have instincts of how to say things actually, how to do things the way you do them in reality. And I would indicate everything. I once did a 60-second uh, silent film at USC very early on, and I was playing a guy that was packing to go see his mother because she was dying. And I indicated packing more than I actually just packed, and it was so much so that when they screened it in the class, some of the students were laughing. And uh, luckily for me, the teacher of that class was Ed Dimitrik. And if anyone's a fan of great Hollywood movies, great film noir, they'll know the name Ed Dimitrik. And uh, he actually took me aside and gave me some pointers, you know, and using Robert Mitchum, who he had directed in about nine films, as an example of someone who just does it, who does not act. And at that moment, I knew that the goal was learn to not act. If you could learn to not act, you can act. So I spent many years doing that. But, uh, yeah, the comedy thing is, is the only thing that kept me going early on. Jamie. Who's your favorite stooge? Huh. <laughs> what is your favorite stooge? Shemp. There you go. Not everybody's favorite, but <laughs> Shemp was mine. Jamie, let me ask you. You're also a Brooklyn boy, I should say, Brooklyn native, right? born let me ask you how much fun is it to travel around with this guy as the spokesman of the company oh it's uh, incredible i first of all i'm such a fan and uh, his knowledge of theater and movies and music and comedy is extraordinary so he's always keeping us entertained and uh, it's uh, incredibly interesting to see people's reaction to larry the first time they see him Larry gets recognized all over the country, whether he's in soup garb or not. So uh, that's always tremendous fun. Thank uh, you. It is kind of weird having an actor in the business world because those two, those two things hardly ever mix. And uh, it's, it's just really interesting going into these business situations, um, especially we're in supermarkets. You know, that's, that's the big push is to get these tetra cartons into all the supermarkets so you know not just new yorkers can enjoy this soup or tourists in new york but everybody everywhere can go into their local supermarket and we are all over the country and most of your cities you can go into a kroger's or a safeway or as we said fairway gristides here in new york and you can get the soup off the shelf and enjoy it and um, we go into these meetings with these heads of the supermarket chains and, you know, I'm in there being the soup man. And, it, you know, those meetings can be pretty dry, <laughs> you know. And uh, I'll just be sitting there going, try the soup. You didn't try the soup. You're not going to get soup. We won't be in your supermarket. <laughs> you know, and, and it, it hopefully brings a little levity into an otherwise dry situation. So it's, it, it's mixing two things that don't usually get mixed. Have you stayed in touch with any of the cast of Seinfeld? I, you know, I, I do on and off, not intentionally. A lot of the other guest actors uh, who I became friends with during the finale episode, it was a wonderful mixer of 50, 50 journeyman actors all getting to know each other. And um, 
so those guys, I'll see them on auditions sometimes, like Brian George, who played Babu, since we both do Middle Eastern, we'll, we'll run into each other. Phil Morris, who played Jackie Childs, and I keep in touch. But as far as, you know, the Jerry George, uh, Elaine and Kramer, I travel in different circles than them. But uh, I'll tell you an example of, of the, how great these people are. Uh, I wrote a book. It's called Confessions of a Soup Nazi, an Adventure in Acting and Cooking. And about a week before it was going into printing, I went to a play in uh, Hollywood, and Jason was sitting right behind me. So after the play, he goes, hey, man, how's it going? What are you up to? And I said, well, I just wrote a book. And, you know, I hadn't thought of asking the people I know to write a blurb for the cover or whatever. You know, just getting the thing written and published was a hard enough task. And uh, he goes, what can I do for you? And I went, really? Like, well, I said, can you write a blurb for the for the back cover of the book? And he goes, done. You know, give, here's my email address. And so I emailed him a, a little chapter from the book. He sends me back an email. He goes, this is the blurb you want. And he goes, oh, and in case you don't have a forward, here's your forward. Hmm. So the forward in my book is by Jason. And just by his kindness, I didn't even ask him to do it. So that's the kind of guy he is. Um uh, Julia, I went to a Veep function at the um, at the TV Academy, and uh, at the end of the function, you know, they were up on stage and we were in the audience, and I kind of stood up and looked her way. I thought, well, maybe I can wave to her and, and just say hi, and because it had been you know many years, and she saw me standing there, and she ran off the stage and ran up to me and hugged me, and she goes, "Can we take a picture together for my Twitter?" And I went, really? And it's so funny because if you see that picture, I look like a deer in the headlights because I'm still surprised that she asked me. And so that's, you know, that's the way they are. They're just really cool people. I got to work with Jerry again in 2012 on an Acura spot for the Super Bowl. And um, it was a wonderful experience. It was the, the spot was written once again by Spike Ferriston, who had written my episode. So I Got to hang out with Spike again. And um, I would say the most interesting thing that I took away with that is the same exact thing happened. Jerry, I had this one line then the first day, soup for you. And Jerry actually said, why don't you say it differently? Because, you know, it's been so many years and maybe you've loosened up a little bit. And I went, really? You got a minute? And I spent the next like five minutes explaining to Jerry why the character should never change. Uh-huh. You should never mess with what people love about the character. And he goes, so what's your idea? And I said, well, you say you own all the characters. So wouldn't I be characteristically angry and reluctant that you're forcing me to give this guy soup? And he goes, yeah, yeah, you're right. Do it that way. So the same thing happened as in the original, you know. And and this is Jerry 14 years later into a fortune that was constantly growing and power in the industry that was constantly growing, yet it did not change his artistic sensibility at all. And for anybody that is going to ask the question, what was it like working with Jerry? That's what it's like working with Jerry, you know? So so I've had wonderful experiences running into them since then, and uh, they just remain the, as nice as they were when I worked with them. And, uh, you know, I'm 
big, huge fan of Veep. I never miss an episode. Although I'm a little, I'm a little upset about the way they took out the last season. You know, I like Julia far too much to. <laughs> I won't give it away, but, but that you know, great people. Well, I can talk with you guys all day, but I have three soups to finish. So, Jamie, yes. thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, George. Larry, the soup Nazi. Thank you. Thank you, George. You can read all about Larry Thomas in his book, Confessions of a Soup Nazi, An Adventure in Acting and Cooking. And look out for original Soup Man soups in a grocery store near you. Larry was joined in our studios by the CEO of that company, Jamie Carson. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producer Zach Zalas. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening. You can read all about Larry Thomas in his book, Confessions of a Soup Nazi, An Adventure in Acting and Cooking. And look for original... I don't like that one. You can read all about Larry Thomas in his book, Confessions of a Soup Nazi, An Adventure in Acting and Cooking. And look for original Soup Man soups in a grocery store near you. Larry was joined in our studios by the CEO of that company, Jamie... Nah, the first one was better. Going to do it one more time. Three, two, and... One. You can read all about Larry Thomas in his book, Confessions of a Soup Nazi, An Adventure in Acting and Cooking. And to look for original Soup Man soups in a grocery store near you. Larry was joined in our studios by the CEO of that company, Jamie Carson. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can find an extended version of this interview. You can... Yeah, one more time. Three, two... And one, Jamie Carson. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can find an extended version of this interview, as well as past shows online, at wfuv.org slash cityscape, or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. My thanks to producer Zach Zalas. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. With fall now here... Yeah. With fall now here and the temperature slowly starting to drop, a lot of us will look to warm up with a nice bowl of soup. Well, not all of us. I'm George Podarki. Coming up on this week's Cityscape, we're talking with the soup Nazi of Seinfeld fame. Join us this morning at 6.30 right here on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. With fall now here and the temperature slowly starting to drop, a lot of us will look to warm up with a nice bowl of soup. Well, 